I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your guide to the whitetail woods. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel for the stand, saddle, or blind. First Light. Go farther, stay longer. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. This week on the show, I'm joined by Kip Adams, the Chief Conservation Officer for the National Deer Association, to discuss the state of whitetails in 2024, and the issues that we deer hunters need to be aware of. All right, welcome back to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light and their Camo for Conservation initiative, which gives money back to the National Deer Association from every purchase of First Light's Spectre Whitetail Camo. Big fan of the pattern, big fan of the program. Thanks for supporting both. And our guest today works for the National Deer Association. As I mentioned in the intro, he is the Chief Conservation Officer, Kip Adams. Kip is someone who hopefully you've all heard from and heard of. He's been on the show many times. He is a tremendous uh, resource. He has a wealth of information at his fingertips, a wildlife biologist, and now has been working for the NDA for a long time, one of the best educators and speakers out there when it comes to deer-related issues, um, deer education, deer biology, you name it, Kip can talk to you about it. And he is one of the people working on this deer report that the NDA puts out every year. This deer report goes through and compiles data on all sorts of different things related to the deer population across the country and deer hunting. So, Today, our conversation goes through like what the main takeaways are when it comes to trends within deer hunting and deer harvest. You know, how are we doing? Is deer harvest up? Is it down? Bucks, does, age structure, all that kind of stuff. We cover it. We also dive into some of the issues of importance that we deer hunters need to be keeping tabs on, maybe taking action on uh, stuff like where things stand on chronic wasting disease, things related to ballot box biology, and 
you know, the changing composition of, uh, you know, wildlife commissions in different states, the people who are overseeing our managing agencies. Uh, do we need to, do we need to know about what's going on there? We talk about the importance of prescribed fire. We talk about the importance of, and if we can have any influence, uh, on, you know, deer, uh, donation programs, venison donation programs. We talk about the continuing challenges that we're having in many parts of the country managing our antlerless population, why that's something that we deer hunters need to be paying attention to and acting on ourselves. So that's the kind of stuff we cover today. If you are a deer hunter here in America, this is something you need to listen to. I highly recommend you go and download a copy of the deer report for yourself review this information in its entirety. We, we cover just a fraction of what's in that report, but it's some important stuff. I think this is the kind of information that arms you to be not just a better deer hunter, but someone who can influence the future of deer hunting in a positive way, right? Knowledge is power. We need to understand the landscape. We need to understand what's going on if we want to make sure that it, that it stays good and healthy and around for us in future years and for our kids and our grandkids and all those that follow. So that's the plan. That's the podcast today. Kip always makes it interesting. He keeps it fun. This is a good one. I hope you'll tune in and enjoy the rest of this episode. And I thank you for being here. All right. Back with me now on the show for, I don't know, the sixth, seventh, eighth appearance. It's been a lot now, Kip. Uh, I've got Kip Adams here with me on the line. Thank you for joining me, my friend. Absolutely. It's good to see you, Mark. And uh, yeah, I always, always look forward uh, to, to being with you once our annual deer report comes out. So uh, we have done a bunch of them together. We have. There has been um, not many years of the podcast in which we have not had you on the show to either review the deer report or something similar. Yeah. So I'm glad the trend continues. Mm -hmm. And um, before we get into the state of whitetails across America, I have to ask, what's the state of whitetails in the Adams family? How was the twenty-four or the twenty-three season for you? It was, it was a little slower than many. Um, we've been very lucky, both my family and my hunting camp. Uh, we've had several really good deer seasons in a row. So uh, we were due for maybe a little, a little off season, and uh, we had some really late frost this year, late May. We had three frosts out of four days at the end of May, which zapped all of our acorns. We lost all of our apples. We actually had some oak trees wilt, and we lost mature oak trees. What that means wow. for us is that we have a bunch of other food sources, but certainly acorns, you know, can can make or not, not make or break. Acorns can have a big impact on deer season. We had no acorns and no other mass, which meant we didn't see as many deer as we normally do. So we had a lot of fun. We put deer in the freezer. We still have a very traditional Pennsylvania deer camp with a bunch of family and friends there. So we had a really good time, but it's the first time since 2011 that, that we did not kill a buck at our camp. So uh, the wow. two biggest bucks that we know were there, we still had pictures of all the way through the end of our firearm season. We just never saw either of them. So, uh, um, so we had a lot of fun. We didn't have as good of a year from a buck standpoint as, as we typically do, uh, but that just means that uh, they're going to be that much bigger and older next year. So uh, high, high hopes for the upcoming season. So with that, with that, the mast issues you talked about there, does that portend any kind of concern for the future as far as the impact that could have on, you know, 
survival over the winter or anything, or is, or is that something no, you're not too worried about? No, I'm not worried about that. You know, we're even, we get some pretty hard winters here at times, but, uh, you know, deer, deer live way North of us and then do pretty well, you know, on winter. So even if we don't have, you know, that mass, you know, our deer aren't going to die. It more impacts daily movements during our hunting season than anything else. We work hard to ensure that we have food uh, throughout hunting season, well, throughout the whole year. Um, but, you know, where I live, it's mountainous. In um, most of that, those frosts were elevation related. So what that means is some of our neighbors had acorns and we didn't. So it's not like deer were going to die. It's just, man, when those acorns were hitting the ground, they just moved off of us to feed on them, you know, pretty close by. Two of our neighbors had exceptional deer seasons. Uh, three of our neighbors that all touch us were kind of like us and just didn't have acorns and didn't see as much. But uh, and one of our neighbors stopped who they also manage a lot of habitat. They do a really good job with that. Said, uh, Kip, I don't know where all these bucks have come from, but we have never seen this many bucks in my life. And I'm thinking, I know exactly where they came from. <laughs> <laughs> they came from us. Because, uh, so, I mean, it's a, they, they join us. And so it literally, you know, you know how good deer are at just finding where the best food is, you know, within there. You know, it's not like these yeah. deer are leaving and going miles. You know, they're just shifting a little bit. So, um, so anyway, no, I, deer aren't going to die. And uh, I fully expect, you know, us to have a really good year this coming year. Um, so hopefully we'll, we won't have any of these late frosts. We may be able to take advantage of some of the mass that we have. Yeah, man. It's funny how it can be uh, so on and off, mm-hmm. hot and cold, year to year. Little little changes in habitat, weather. Um, it can It can really change the experience you have when you're on a, you know, a relatively small area. It's kind of like during the rut, right? Every year, people like to say, "Ah, oh, the rut was late this year," or "the rut, you know, we must have missed the rut. We didn't see it." Mm-hmm. Um, there's always folks that are making these big claims based on what they saw just on their 80 acres or 100 acres or 20 acres. But it's so, it's so hard to miss the big picture when, you know, it might have been dead for you this week on your 80, but then, like you just said, you know, 500 acres over the other side, they're just on fire. <laughs> um, it's it's very hard to to see that when your own experience is so different. Yeah. And then when I tell people, you know, we, we love to, we as hunters complain about our state wildlife agencies and this and that. And, you know, when I tell them, Hey, you know, like they manage deer at the wildlife management unit level. We don't hunt at that level. You know, we hunt at the property level. So, you know, in any given management, you know, you'll have areas where there are very few deer, way too many deer and, everything in between. So you are exactly right. We like to think of the exact situation we're having as what all hunters have. And that that's just not the case at all. So, uh, you know, managing habitat and managing hunting pressure help us, you know, put the odds in our favor that we will continue to have really good hunting. And, you know, in most cases that works out, um, you know, sometimes with extreme events, uh, that doesn't, but, uh, I'll always want to err on the side of that and, you know, continue to do habitat work. Cause I know nine times out of 10, that, that's definitely going to help us see more deer. And as long as we're passing younger bucks, older bucks as well. Yeah. So this, this idea of trying to look at the bigger picture and, 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 and recognizing that what you are seeing in isolation in your back 40 or in your County or whatever, that might not be the case at the state level or the nation level. I think that probably speaks to a bit of the purpose behind the deer report that you guys put together. Right. Um, <laughs> Mm-hmm. What are you guys trying to achieve with this every year? I mean, it, it makes for great talking points for us to have a podcast uh, once every twelve months. But but when you guys sit down and put this information 
on paper and, and send this out to the world. What are you really hoping comes from it? Well, I think uh, strictly education. And uh, we provide information that helps hunters see what's going on in their area, what's going on in their state, how that compares to their neighbors and other regions. Um, it helps natural resource professionals with the same because many of the issues that somebody in Michigan is dealing with, it helps your deer biologist to see, be able to take a look at a map and say, oh, you know what? Pennsylvania is dealing with the same thing or Iowa is or, oh, wow, Mississippi does this way differently. So, you know, the audience are or is deer hunters, um, but it's also just deer enthusiasts, deer managers, uh, the media, et cetera. So it, it's most helpful if we can understand what's going on outside of just our the area that we hunt. And then also kind of what's going on around the country. You know, there may be somebody else that's in it with a similar issue that that has a great answer for where you are. So anyway, that's the idea of it. Let's collect the information that we can and then put it all together and then be able to share that. In some of those chapters, you know, we provide our analysis of, oh, this is good or this is bad. Um, some of them, we just put it all together and share like, hey, here, here's a look at what's actually out there. So uh, I think hunters are more engaged than ever before. And that's a really good thing. And, uh, you know, we've been doing this since 2009 now. And I really appreciate hearing back from the State Wildlife Agency Deer Biologist uh, how helpful it is to them, too, because they can see how, you know, take drones, for example. You know, drone is a big issue today. So we have a chapter this year looking at where are they legal? Where can you use them for deer recovery? Where can you not? And um, so we get questions not only from hunters, but from state wildlife agencies about that as well. So um, hopefully it's an educational thing that can help, you know, a whole suite of people who are interested in deer. Yes. Yeah, so if you had, you know, after going through all of this data from across the different states, from the surveys you've collected, from all of these different agencies, if there was one headline that you wanted deer hunters in America to take away from this, if there's one important takeaway from the 2020, 24, I'm still getting my years mixed up, the 2024 deer report, what's that single most important thing that we walk away from this year's from? We have historically high buck harvest rates right now with the oldest age structure we've ever shot, which is unbelievable. Um, I'm not going to say that as my number one thing, though, because we have been edging toward that the last few years and, and sharing that information. So we're, you know, we're in the golden age of deer hunting right now. However, my number one takeaway from this, um, which is shocking to a lot of hunters, it is really shocking to non-hunters, and, uh, and it's, it's maybe less shocking to, to deer managers, but pretty, pretty impactful there as well, is that less than half of all the hunters that go to a field each year shoot a deer. Less than half. You know, think about it. Michigan, you have a two-buck limit. You can kill multiple antlerless deer. Pennsylvania, I have a one buck limit, but I can kill multiple antlerless deer. You know, some states you have a multi buck limit and multiple antlers. Like George, you can kill 10 does with your tag. So we think hunters, non hunters alike, man, we are just laying deer out. The reality it yeah. is, though, Mark, less than half of all the hunters that go deer hunting every year are going to shoot a deer. And only a small number shoot more than one. I know you shot a deer, you're in the minority. I know you shot yeah. more than one deer this year. You are in the real minority of hunters. People who are avid like you and me and a lot of your listeners, we look at like, man, everybody's killing deer. That's not true. 
less than half the hunter shoot a deer. I think that's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's pretty uh, eye opening. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's the what's the what do we do with that information? Like, what's mm-hmm. the what's the action item, or or why does that matter? I guess it's it's interesting, but by in in us recognizing like, oh wow, most hunters aren't killing deer. What does that mean for us as hunters or managers moving forward? Does does that mean there's an education gap? Like, hey, people need to learn how to be more successful? Or is this a for a managing agency like, oh wow, even though you're selling all these licenses, the minority of them are the ones who can actually take enough action to manage the population. So therefore we need to do something different. Like what's the next step now that we know this? I think there's two parts to that. One is the next step for wildlife agencies is that, you know, this allows them to know how many antlerless tags they need to issue to, you know, to meet their harvest objectives or be able to share this information with hunters from a, a strong educational campaign. Hey, you know, if they want them to shoot more antlerless deer, you know, hey, here's the reality. Here's why we need you to shoot more because most people aren't shooting any. Or from a disease standpoint, if you're in a disease zone and you want hunters to shoot more, it's important for them to realize just by saying, hey, here's an extra tag, that doesn't mean it's going to be, you know, a, a filled tag or there's a deer. It helps them to know what percentage of hunters are actually doing this so they can then do the best job to, to, to meet their target harvest goals. Most states, not all of them, but most states go into the deer season with, you know, an idea of, okay, here's how many deer we want to kill in these different, different units. So knowing how many hunters are in those units. And the success rate of those hunters allows them to do the best job meeting their, their harvest objective. That keeps them from over-harvesting or under-harvesting deer herds. So that's very good. From the hunter end, this is important to know because, you know what? I thought we were, you know, like eliminating deer herds or we're reducing deer herds to the point where I didn't need to take an extra deer or I didn't need to shoot that doe. But, you know, I can hear my agency asking me to do this. And if the reality is there's only a very small percentage shooting multiple deer, okay, maybe I will, you know, help, you know, manage these resources even more by shooting an antlerless deer or shooting an extra antlerless deer. Maybe I can then donate that to a needy family. So it helps people um, be better stewards, you know, if they understand, hey, here's exactly what's happening on the playing field. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Um, so, so a few thoughts on her questions around herd management, as we're talking about some of the things you mentioned there, you know, managing the doe herd, you, you mentioned that our yearling harvest is the lower, lowest it's ever been. And the three and a half or older harvest is as high as it's ever been. Um, so, you know, for, as you mentioned for several years now, we've been right around that mark kind of feels like maybe we, we've found like an equilibrium possibly. Um, this has been a mission of the organization you're part of formerly the quality deer management association for years and years and years was trying to get a more healthy age structure, a healthier deer herd. When it comes to age structure nationally, when you average it all out, it seems like we have seen, you know, leaps and bounds of growth there and improvement. So the question is, if if that is a message that has gotten across and, and we're seeing strong, strong progress there, especially in the Southeast, but better in, in most places, it seems like, what's the next major focus area for herd management that we hunters really need to focus in on? Um, 
we, we talked about this last year and the year before a little bit. So it might, maybe your answer is going to be the same thing, but I'm curious now here in 2024, when we're looking at, Hey, how do we make sure we're managing this herd appropriately for a long time? It was past that young buck. What's the next thing? What's the yes. And to that. It's, it's in much of the United States harvesting additional antlerless deer. It is increasing the antlerless harvest to appropriate levels to keep deer herds where, uh, well, we need them to be relative to the, you know, how much habitat there is. Um, in some cases, that means really reducing the deer herd um, locally. Um, in other cases, it might be just slightly reducing a deer herd. But the fact that um, for many of the hunting seasons in the past decade, we have shot more antlered bucks than antlerless deer, that's not a good thing. Like there are some states that, yes, that's a recipe for success. New England comes to mind. States kind of on the fringe of good whitetail habitat. But for most states, that's a recipe for disaster if we're shooting more bucks than we are analyst deer. So that's really the next step. We have done a great job as a hunting culture um, protecting those younger bucks. We have the best age structure we've had in the last 100, 150 years from the buck end. So phenomenal. Now we can just manage that and go through. That's the healthiest for deer. So obviously great hunting opportunities for us, but now we need to look at again at the antlerless side and say, okay, let's make sure that we're being good stewards here and shooting enough antlerless deer. Because if we lose that part of it, that all that gain we have in buck age structure doesn't matter. You know, we need to be having the right number of deer for what our habitats can support. And we do that by having the appropriate antlerless harvest. Yeah. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. 
So help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Forgive me for the fact that we talk about this ad nauseum, but can you give us the cliff notes rundown again on how balancing that side of the herd helps the health and quality of the deer and hunting opportunities down the line too. So, so by more effectively managing our antlerless deer population, so by killing some more does where appropriate, can you just give us the quick rundown on the trickle down effects on how that helps all these other things that we care about? Sure. From a deer herd, everything starts by having the right number of deer for what the habitat can support. Um, Deer can exist above that line, but they're being nutritionally deprived. And if they're being nutritionally deprived, they're not able to express their body growth potential, their antler growth potential, their fawn production potential. So there's a lot of hunters that hunt in herds that are being nutritionally deprived simply because there's not enough food for numbers of deer. Now, I will be the first to say, I like to see a lot of deer when I go hunting. I get it. There's nothing wrong with that. So hunters don't need to apologize for that or try to get around it. When I'm not seeing many deer, you know, I'm the first to be getting itchy, like, hey, something's not right. However, we we want to have a deer herd in balance with how much the habitat can support. We do that by harvesting analyst deer to bring it down, but also increasing the quality of that habitat so it can support more deer. But when we're in a, in a, a skewed situation, um, that's not good for deer because they're not getting enough to eat. And since they can negatively impact that habitat, they degrade the habitat, which means that five years from now, it can support even fewer deer, which is not what we want. And it's also negatively impacting numerous other wildlife species. So if you have too many deer, nothing good happens. So let's correct that by shooting antlerless deer. Now we have a habitat that is healthy, can can support more deer. It is also good for other wildlife species, which long-term is best for us as hunters. And then once a deer herd is in balance, then they get enough to eat and they get enough high quality food to eat. It would be like if you or me, you know, we may have all the rice cakes we want through the year, you know, but we can eat the heck out of rice cakes, you know, and we're not going to be big and strong. It just doesn't happen. So, Hey, let's get us enough to eat, but also get us good stuff to eat. That's what we do by managing habitat and making sure that there's not more deer than the habitat can support. Some people think, man, if I shoot that doe, I'm hurting my future hunting. 
And the reality of it is that's not true. You are helping your future hunting by making sure that deer are getting enough high quality food to eat. So long term, it's way better for us to make sure we achieve those uh, appropriate antlerless harvest goals. Yeah. Now, I think there's another risk to not managing our antlerless deer herd, which is something that was alluded to in an email that my whole state of Michigan, the hunting population in Michigan received last year from our deer biologist, in which he pleaded with hunters in Michigan to get more serious about trying to harvest antlerless deer, especially in the southern two-thirds of the state where deer populations are largely out of control. Um, he, he spoke to the fact that our antlerless harvest continues to decrease. We are killing significantly more bucks than does now. And, and he, I can't remember exactly how this is phrased, but, but there was something in there along the lines of, if we can't right the ship, if we can't start managing our analyst herd, hunters as a tool for managing the deer population will be, might be deprioritized. Mm -hmm. We, we might lose our job to some degree, or we, we might be threatened to some degree with the opportunity to do that work. By that, I mean there are some places now that are looking at other ways to manage their deer herds outside of just hunters because hunters haven't been able to put the numbers down to where they need to be. Can, can you speak to that a little bit? Is that a real risk? Is that something that 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line could have ramifications on our hunting opportunities and our place within this whole management system? Well, I, I think the answer is yes. Um, today, because hunters provide a free ecological service to society. You know, we harvest deer, which is great. We help keep deer herds in balance, which is great. You know, and we're not charging society to do that. We buy the hunting licenses and the gear and in effect, you know, pay for our wildlife management programs by pumping that money in. So we are champions of society. We get to have that opportunity though, because society allows us to. Only about 4% of the U.S. population buys a hunting license. So we like to think, yeah, I'm going to hunt and I'll always get to because it's my God-given right. And I wish that was true, but we don't get to do anything in the United States because 4% of us want to do it. We get to hunt yeah. because about 80% of the American public supports hunting. Even though they don't hunt, they support legal, ethical, regulated hunting. So because that part of society allows us to hunt, we should do the best job we can, being the best stewards possible, and managing those herds. So as hunters, when we choose to not shoot enough deer to keep deer herds where they need to be, and deer-human conflicts continue to rise, crop damage, forestry damage, deer vehicle accidents, etc., cetera, um, society will find another way to solve that problem. And as hunters, we don't want them to find somebody else because you know we want to continue to hunt. This doesn't mean that we're not going to be able to continue hunting in the future. I'm not saying that because I believe we will. But right now, we are by far the primary way that all whitetail herds are managed. And I want to keep it that way. So if we don't solve the problem, society will find somebody else that helps hunters solve that problem or manage that deer herd. And, and that, that may be good for hunting, but there's a really good chance that hunters won't like that. So me included. So I want us to continue to do the best we can and by projecting a good public image, which today hunters in large part do, that's very good. 
but we also need to make sure that we are managing the deer herd appropriately and following what our state wildlife agents are asking us to do. The non-hunting public doesn't want to hear the agency say, we need you to shoot more deer and then hunters not do it. So, so I think what you asked about is a very legitimate question. I'm not a fear mongerer by any means, and, and I'm an optimist by nature. Um, so I'm looking at just what I know from the last 30 years of, of managing deer and hunting deer. Um, so yes, I think there's a real chance that in the future, in places where we just failed to do the job, that uh, you know society will find something else. We're seeing this in other countries right now. So it, you know it's not that big of a stretch that uh, you know we can see the same thing here. Yeah, I think we we need to we need to get ahead of that, right? We need to stay on the front end of that and and keep those conversations from having to bubble up, um, which I think leads to a need for folks to for that two percent or whatever the, the number of people who kill multiple deer. So so what we're what that original data set points to is that the proportion of the hunting population that is actually currently making a dent in the deer population enough to manage it. We're talking a very small group of the hunting population. So if there's 10 million deer hunters in America, um, what was the percentage that kills multiple deer? 17%? Is that 17. right? Yeah. Less than one in five. So 17. Per, yeah. So we've got a real small sliver of the hunters who kill more than one deer. So those are the people <laughs> who currently right now are, are, are having some kind of influence. Um, that within that group, for good reason, there is, uh, for many hunters, a a pretty darn close one-to-one -one correlation between kill deer, eat deer, mm -hmm. right? Or, or close to it. Um, or kill deer, give deer to friend. Or kill deer, share with family at the potluck. Um, but what we're seeing is that there are more deer that need to be killed than than I can personally eat myself, right? And so that is where I think we need to have these conversations about, okay, how do we, A, make sense of that and come and, and, and make that kind of math add up for us? Hey, if I'm going to kill more deer, how do I feel okay about doing that in a way that I don't feel like I'm wasting this meat or inappropriately taking from the landscape? Um, and then making it possible for that meat to go to good causes like these different hunters feeding the hungry programs, making it easier to share meat, to donate meat. Um, it seems like that's something that that needs to continue to grow because it's actually getting harder to donate meat here in southern Michigan. Um, my local meat processors aren't taking it anymore. I think in states with CWD issues, that's becoming more challenging. So I think that is likely another one of these things that we'll have to continue to address to make it easier to make sure that we we kill the number of deer that need to be killed and that that meat is going to a good cause and that hunters feel good about doing that work. That's right. And I think that is the single largest issue that we need to solve is that venison donation opportunity. As you said, some states have it make it very easy. Some states, not at all. And in most states, there's still a hunter has to pay for part of that. And you know, like, you know what? I if I can donate a deer and help somebody, if I have to pay a little bit, okay, I am into this. You are into this. We may do that. But for the average hunter who it might have, you know, it might have been difficult to even get a hold of that antlerless tag or to pay for it, and then to pay an extra twenty-five, fifty, or whatever to have it donated. Um, you know, that's a real barrier. So I firmly believe that we have to make it as easy as possible, free to hunters. If you want to donate this deer, it doesn't cost you a penny. You know, okay, you have to get it to the processor, so you're going to pay some in gas or diesel, but it's not costing a penny. And I think that's where society 
legislation can help by providing, you know, enough into those programs. Right now, hunters fund them, which, you know, we fund all this other stuff, you know, because we want to, but the bill is bigger than what we can fund. So I think we have to solve that to provide that avenue for those deer. That would be great. The second part is we have to have much stronger public education campaigns from our state wildlife agencies, encouraging deer, encouraging deer hunters to shoot those extra antlerless deer, but they have to explain why and how that will benefit them. Some states yeah. have been really successful with strong campaigns. Most just haven't got in enough you know, for those to be successful. But, but there are examples of where states have done that and, uh, and have moved the needle. To your first point of that um, statement, that being there, there likely needs to be some larger um, mechanism to help pay for this, to fund these kinds of programs. Is there any, is there any example of a state that's found a way to do that well? Or B, is there any progress towards this? Have there been people floating bills to develop some kind of nationwide um, pot of, of money for something like this or a program? Is there anything to point to and say, hey, let's get behind this? Or do we, do we really, literally need to build something from the ground up? I think we need to build something from the ground up. Um, but we at least have examples, the most recent being the CWD Research and Management Act. You know, I think there's been so much push from the CWD end in the past several years, and rightfully so, that there just hasn't been as the push from the, the venison donation. Most states, or maybe all states, have some type of venison donation programs. Um, some are way better than others. Farmers and Hunters Feeding the Hungry that's based out of Maryland is one of the best. My family has donated many deer through that program, and it is phenomenal. But even that program runs out of money in Maryland each year. So. Um, there's a bigger need for those. I'm not aware of a larger national push with that. Um, I don't get as involved with the policy anymore. Um, so it's possible there is. I don't think so though, Mark, but there's definitely an avenue for that that we have seen with other things. So um, that, that would be a great thing for hunters to get behind. Yeah. Well, interestingly, there's a direct connection between CWD management and this kind of program, right? Because if we could better address the donation of deer, we might be able to encourage a, a, a more appropriate management of deer herds, which then helps you mitigate the spread of CWD by reducing densities, unnatural densities where it's a problem. So, so I almost wonder if there might be a way to tap into future CWD earmarked funds yeah. to fund a program like this. Because, you know, we were talking this past summer, there was a CWD summit I was at. And one of the single most important action items that's so simple, but would make such a big difference in continuing to address the spread of CWD is just take another antlerless deer, get folks to, to do this job more effectively, more consistently. If we can just do that, it serves as such a speed bump for CWD spreading faster and further. Hmm. Um, so this, this seems like it could be a very action-oriented way to actually make a difference on the whole CWD challenge too. You're right. They definitely are tied together. So the, there's a relation between, you know, those and when then in those disease zones, it's even more important to shoot extra uh, deer like that. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of tie-ins. Uh, the state of yeah. Maryland several years ago had a great way that they actually dealt with this. Of course, Maryland is small. There's only three counties, but they had drop boxes where hunters could just take, you know, to these coolers, 
put your deer in. They ended up having uh, all these deer processed at their, uh, their, their state jail where they actually taught <laughs> the inmates to process me. So the inmates were learning a skill. It was literally pennies to, to process these deer. It was, it was a wow. tremendous example of, Hey, let's just sit down and figure out how to, how to solve this. The deer went to these yeah. coolers, agency staff picked them up. They took them to the jail. The inmates um, actually processed all of this. It all went out to the food banks. It was a tremendous example of, you know what, when we sit down and work together, you know, we can make things happen. So uh, that, that was pretty cool how they, how they tackled that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great example of just uh, simple problem solving right there and finding solutions. Hmm. So CWD, since that's since we're talking about it, we we might as well dive into that a little bit further. Can you give us uh, an update on where things stand in 2024 when it comes to chronic wasting chronic wasting disease, the spread of it, um, updates on research, anything new there that we need to know about? Well, we're up to 31 states now, so the disease continues to spread, um, finding it in new areas like Florida, like Alabama, you know, some some states down in the southeast now. Um, fortunately, hunters understand more about the disease than ever before. So we're not seeing it as much as these scare tactics and, you know, oh, I'm going to quit hunting because this unknown. There's enough information today to tell hunters, hey, Here's what we know about it. There's still a lot we don't know, but you know what? We're finally seeing some successes relative to, to managing it. We know more about how to predict where states will find it, which, which is a good thing, because as soon as we find it, um, then the state can get a better idea of how long has it likely been there? Is it pretty new? Has it been a while? You know, What's the prevalence rate within that deer herd? Because based on those things, they attack it differently. So we at least know more about predicting where we'll find it, we have better tools today to test for it. Luckily, there's there's more equipment available um, so that hunters can get that test back sooner. Perfect example, we had a chapter in our, our annual deer report a couple of years ago on what's the turnaround time. Nationally, it was like two to three weeks from when a hunter would turn a CWD sample in till they would get the result. That's a long time. Yeah. So we need to do better than that. This year, um, my home state of Pennsylvania, Average turnaround time, five days. So that is a huge gain. You know what? If you're processing your own, you know, you're probably hanging it for that long anyway before you process it. So you have your result back. Um, if it's at, if you take it to a processor within that time, you may not have it back anyway before then. So anyway, the faster turnaround time is way more convenient for hunters and allows you to, to better handle that meat if it turns out to be positive. So my take is, hey, let's continue to push that envelope in the future so we get that down even more. You know, we're not real close yet to an infield test. It would be great if in the field you could take a blood sample, take a DNA sample, ear chip, something, and quickly know what it is. We're working toward yeah. that. You know, that's not going to happen in the next year or two. But the fact that today the average turnaround time went from two to three weeks to, you know, less than a week in the state. Hey, that's a big gain. And we know that actually running the test is very quick. The, the time is getting the sample from the drop boxes to the lab and then back to hunters. So as now that as we have better technology to test those, we can increase the number of machines that do that testing and increase some of the logistics you know, within these states to get the samples quicker. 
which means we can we can reduce that turnaround time even farther. So that's a that's a huge gain for hunters. That's a big win for us. So there's a lot of things we don't know, but we're finally starting to see some of the successes in the fight, and uh, and that's encouraging, and that helps more hunters feel like they can make a difference and get engaged. Yeah. Uh, the CWD Research and Management Act was signed into law last January, I believe. So we, we've been in it about 12 months now. H- has there been anything, has any action come out of that yet? Have we seen any important things be funded by that bill? Has anything been made possible yet by that? Because it was it was hailed as a, as a big success at the beginning of last year. Are we seeing anything from that yet? I guess is what I'm getting to. Um, that, that has not well, this year because that, that puts 70 million in the, to management, 35 for for research and you know 35 for monitoring and surveillance, which is a is a great. Well, all of that money wasn't asked for uh, last year. Um, states weren't didn't survive. So long story short, uh, through our policy work and, and other wildlife agencies or other uh, NGOs and wildlife agencies, we were able to get out to the states and say, hey, you know, there's money that we can get for this or that you can get for this that's not being requested right now. Let's increase, you know, all of these asks from a research end and that because the money will not be appropriated if the states aren't effectively asking for all that. They're spending more than that. You know, they're just taking it from other programs. So, hey, now we have a means to do this. So the biggest thing this year was um, getting states in line to be able to request money from that to make sure that it's fully appropriated. So uh, this that is a big win for the CWD fight. We have this now. Let's get states in line to be able to, to pull as much as possible from that so that they can they don't have to rob from all of their other programs for to uh, to fund CWD management and research in their state. Yeah. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go. But here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. 
Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself. And you can find what you need in store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. So what about on the hunter side of things? So where we stand today, I don't think things have changed, but I'm curious if there's anything else new that we have discovered over the last year that changes at all the best practices. So so what are the best practices, Kip, for a deer hunter today in 2024, if you want to be a good steward when it comes to doing the right thing, when it comes to CWD as a deer hunter, what does that entail now, given any new information we have or, or not any new information? The, the best thing for a deer hunter, and I firmly believe that every one of us can engage in this fight and help. One, um, know if the, the disease is in the zone you're hunting or not whether that's at home or you're traveling. And it's super simple to do that. Um, we work with OnX. They have a CWD layer on, their, on the app. So regardless of where you are in the United States, you can look and see, am I in a disease zone or not? It's a free layer on there. There's no reason to not know if you're in a zone or not. And if you are, there's additional information that we re- reference back to all the state wildlife agencies that show, hey, where are Dropbox locations? Do I need to provide a sample or not? And if so, where can I go do it? Are there, you know, all of that stuff is right there. So it's super easy for hunters. So know if you're in a zone or not. And if you are, don't move the high-risk parts of an animal out of that zone if you shoot one. The high-risk parts are, you know, eyes, brain, spleen, backbone. Because one of the things that's bad about the disease is if I come and hunt with you and we're in a disease zone in Michigan, we both shoot a deer and we'd take them home. If I bring those high-risk parts home and discard them on the landscape, I literally could have been moving that disease to my area. And then other deer that come in contact with those remains or the soil around those remains or the plants growing on the soil around those remains, they can then contract the disease. So that is a way that's very easy to move the disease, but it's something that hunters very easily can fight. Don't move those high-risk parts. That more than anything else will help us. And you see people, you know, with deer in their trucks and the trailers are hauling them across state lines. And, and you're seeing states get really serious about it. Kentucky and South Carolina both busted hunters big time fines for bringing deer into their states. So um, it's, it's not okay for a hunter to say, well, I didn't know the rules. 
well, you know what? If you're a hunter, hey, let's be responsible. Let's know the rules. And so if you're in, if you're hunting in a zone, don't move those high risk parts. Every hunter can do that, Mark. And that is the single best thing we can do to help keep or to help limit the spread of the disease. Yeah, pretty simple, but uh, impactful. Mm. So like you said, no excuse not to know about that Mm. and to do the right thing. Mm. And tell our buddies, yeah, tell your buddies, no, don't let them. I was in elk camp in Colorado a few years ago. Um, A guy there who happened to be in camp with a shot an elk was going to take the head home to to another state. And uh, I said, you are not leaving this camp with a head, you know, (laughs) boil it. And there was an opportunity. We could boil it, get the brain out, get the eyes out, whatever. And he said, I'll have my taxidermist at home do it. And I said, you're going to do it here. Like, I will not let you leave here. Like, I didn't know that guy before we got there. But I'm saying like, this is a big deal. Um, He ended up leaving a day early. I was out hunting. I got back to camp that night and he was gone. I was furious. All the other guys at camp Mm -hmm. said, we told him, like, Kip is not going to be happy. So the guy broke the rules, which is wrong. But I was more upset about, you know what? You are risking all those deer you know, back in your home state where you're going, because you're going to take it back there and dump it. So, yeah. so not only can we not move them, but we need to make sure our hunting buddies know, hey, this is important. Don't you move them either. So, yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and uh, peer pressure is a whole lot more effective than a state agency telling you what to do, right? That's right. You know, putting the pressure in a, in a, in a positive way with your buddies, making sure they know the right thing to do and, Give them a little incentive to do so is probably going to uh, is going to help get the right thing done more so than a pamphlet from the DNR. So yeah, we got to do that. We got to be those people. So speaking of pieces of paper, uh, one of the issues you highlighted, which I found interesting in the report this year, was fire. You guys made a point to dive into whether or not um, states have prescribed fire councils, whether they have prescribed fire, excuse me, prescribed fire assistance available in different states. And I'm curious, why was this something that you guys wanted to shine a light on and talk about and and make sure folks were aware of? Why is fire and prescribed fire of importance to the deer hunting world these days? Prescribed fire is a tremendous habitat enhancement tool for, for wildlife, for deer, but for a whole host of other wildlife species. Um, at the National Deer Association, we're big fans of using prescribed fire where, where folks are able. And uh, we wanted to get a, a national snapshot on just how much of this is being used um, and where is it being used? Because in areas where it's not, hey, maybe there's an opportunity for us to help folks in those areas have the ability to use more fire. Um, I'm a member of the Pennsylvania Prescribed Fire Council. Um, so my part on that is we do a lot of burning in Pennsylvania now on public land. Um, I want to see more of that happen on private land. Private landowners want to use it. So let's make it more available to them. So as much as anything, we want to just highlight the value of fire so that people realize that, hey, let's look at where it's it's mostly being used. We knew it was used a lot in the, in the Southeast. Um, I know it's used a lot of the Midwest. I'll admit, you know, I was a little surprised at, at where the numbers came out. And of course, the numbers that uh, agencies showed on, because we asked them, hey, how many acres of of, of areas are burned using prescribed fire in your state annually. Some states have a really good measure of that, some not as much. Uh, but nationally, you know, it was just under 9 million acres, which is certainly a minimum estimate. It's probably a lot more than that, but at least we have a baseline. 
you know, of that 9 million, 6 million of it was in the Southeast. So, uh, and then almost all the rest was in the Midwest. (laughs) It was only, you know, a couple hundred thousand acres that we know of in the Northeast. So the Midwest burns a bunch as well, which was very cool. So uh, lots of opportunity, you know, to increase uh, use of fire in the Northeast, which historically fire was used tremendously throughout the Northeast. So uh, Southeast does a real good job using it and recording it. The Midwest does a good job using it and recording it. So, uh, but uh, we, we have lots of opportunities to gain in the Northeast. Would it be fair to say that it, this, this is something that's important to get on folks' radar more often, though, because we're, we're seeing in so many places a homogenization of habitat in a lot of places, a, a, a maturing of forests, especially in so many places where we're getting, you know, there's a lot of forest management issues, right? I know you guys have tackled that and talked about that in the past. And more and more, we're losing early successional habitat. We're losing grasslands and prairies and all that kind of habitat that's super important for deer, but especially important for turkeys and upland birds and grassland birds, songbirds, pollinating insects, all that kind of stuff. All these critters that are part of the ecosystem, they're increasingly across the nation losing the kind of habitat that they need. Uh, Fire is one of the greatest ways to put that back on the landscape, right? Disturbance. We need disturbance to create diversity, to create the kinds of habitat that so many creatures need. And that's a, a disappearing thing these days. Is is part of the highlight here being like, hey, this is important and it's not as hard as you think it is because there is this assistance available. It is that and um it's in many cases the least expensive per acre option to to, to manage and habitat. And um, so there are, you know, there are things that we can do on many of those different vegetation types, you know, um, that may not simulate fire, but ways to manage them. They're all more labor intensive and more expensive. So by allowing people to know, hey, this is a tool um, and this is a really good way to manage, you know, a lot of acres or get the most bang for your buck relative to what you're managing. That is part of it. But it's also important for folks to understand, maybe I'll never use fire, but if I see smoke over on my neighbors, this is a, you know this can be a good thing. Culturally, we are in many places in the north. We are losing that connection to using fire. And if you want to use a chainsaw or you want to use a bush hog or herbicides on your land, it doesn't matter what your neighbor thinks. You're going to be able to do them. But if you want to use fire on your land, it does matter what your neighbor thinks because that smoke may go over on his or her land. So the more people that understand the benefits of fire, even if they're not going to use it, the fact that they understand it and accept that it's practiced in their area helps everybody be able to use fire. Because in many cases, it's not the actual flame or the fire that is either most limiting, it's the smoke. You know, where is that smoke going? Is it going to end up on a highway? So smoke management is a huge part of being able to use that. You know, smoke management is not an issue if you're using your tractor or your chainsaw or your, you know, your side by side, but it is. At least if you're using those things the right way. That's right. (laughs) That's right. But it is with fire. So we want people who may not even use it to understand why it's used so that others can use it in the area. So, and that's a big part of that. So big educational component. Yeah. Speaking of education, uh, you know, I think there are probably a lot of people out there like me who 
know that fire on the landscape can be a good thing, but are just maybe not confident in putting it out there ourselves and doing it on our own, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we, maybe you should speak to a little bit more about you know what these fire councils and what types of programs are available out there because there are there are programs in many states where you can get assistance. So if you're like me and you're kind of a numbskull and you're like, I don't know if I should be out there with a torch, um, but you'd like to get it done and have some help, th- there are ways to get that help, right? Can you can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. And you're right. It, um, there's training available. Um, each state does it a little differently. Some offer a lot more than others. But just like using a, a tractor or a chainsaw or anything else, you can't just grab it and go without understanding how to use it. You know, hey, let's be trained so we're using it safely for yourself and for others. Um, and in many places, you can either get trained or there are other people who are already trained that you can have come on and help burn. Maybe come on and put fire breaks in for you and actually do the burning, maybe provide some other assistance. So there, there's different ways that you can have your area burned in different states. Pennsylvania, for example, um, landowners, you're allowed to burn. Um, as a landowner, they can't tell me I can't burn, but the problem is if I lose the fire onto my neighbors or burn something up, I am in a lot of trouble because there's no liability protection for me. So most states have a training program where you can get your prescribed burner certification, which means you have been trained in the safe use of fire so that you can then pull a burn permit when the conditions are appropriate to burn. So that provides you some protection. So what I tell people is the first understand, hey, this can be really good for, for deer, turkey, upland birds, songbirds, et cetera. So if you want to learn how to do it, that's great. Let's help you find the resources. If not, if you just want somebody else to come out and burn, hey, there's there's you know consultants that do that. There's state and federal agencies that can help you with that. You know, in most places, there is a way that you can get somebody there to help you burn, whether you do it or not. So mm-hmm. There's different options with that, but yeah, you're not, you're absolutely not just going out and lighting matches and, and start because you know, that, that obviously can be extremely dangerous fire, particularly yeah. wildfires. We see the effects on TV all the time of how bad they are. I'll say like the conditions, the environmental conditions, humidity, fuel, moisture, all of that. You would never use prescribed fire in any of those environmental conditions. So the whole idea of prescribed fires, you are using it under a prescription of certain wind speed, certain wind direction, certain humidity level, all of this to put it in as safe in an area as possible and in an area where you have fire breaks, which is an area around where you want to burn, that you have removed the fuel. Maybe it's disc fire breaks. Maybe it's a creek. There's different things, but it's it's the very prescribed use of fire under very specific environmental conditions that allow that to be safe the vast majority of the time. Those are the type of things you get trained to do so that you use it appropriately. Yeah. And is it the, for the states that have a prescribed fire council, is that the entity to reach out to first if you're looking for some kind of assistance or or where would you recommend somebody go to figure out what kind of help's available? The prescribed fire council is a perfect place to start with. Um, you can also go to your state's state wildlife agency or state forestry agency. Um, for example, in Pennsylvania, the Bureau of Forestry oversees all the fire uh, permits in that. Um, so, but a prescribed fire council would be able to direct you there immediately if it was someplace other than them. Um, 
our report has all the states that have those councils. So if you see that, it's very easy to then search online and find them. Um, but you can always go to your state wildlife agency as well. They would be able to, to guide you to the appropriate uh, agency. Okay. All right. I want to take another hard pivot to another topic that, that you guys focus on in the report and that I think has been um, showing up in the news and on our, on our radar more and more often here, especially this past 12 months or so. And that is the, the impact of the changing composition of fish and game commissions across the nation. So the folks who are um, helping manage wildlife policy and management in the states, how, that's, how those people are getting those jobs, what that's doing, how that's changing. And then I think a, a kind of a cousin of this would be ballot box biology, which is where we are seeing wildlife management decisions being made into ballot initiatives in which the general public is then voting on them. And, and both of these things I think are, are, are married together or they're, they're adjacent. Um, and I think they represent, you know, some, some real risk when it comes to wildlife management and hunting in America. Can you give me your perspective on a, why did you want to focus on this in the, in the report and B, you know, what do we need to understand? What do we need to be watching for in the future uh, to make sure this is something that's that's a positive and not a negative? Yep, sure. And, you know, let me say one more thing about fire first. Um, I should have mentioned earlier, like, I'm coming to your state uh, this summer to get to do some of that. And at a place near and dear to your heart, we actually have a, a learn and burn oh, yeah. that we're going to do on the back 40 this summer. We did one on my that. place in Pennsylvania two years ago. Uh, we did one in a different place in Pennsylvania's pasture, a learn and burn where we people can come in, get some instruction and actually be on a fire and watch what happens. So this is part of the educational part. You know, hey, let's let's show people you don't need to be afraid of this. This is, you know, the ways that we do it. And um, so, yeah, we picked Michigan and the back 40 specifically to do some of that. So uh, I look forward to being there That's this great. summer. So that'll be awesome. That'll be awesome. All right. So as far as the, uh, the Fish and Game Council, how they're made up. We are heavily involved in in wildlife policy because we want to make sure that we are fighting as hard as possible for deer hunters' rights. And there, there are more stakeholders today involved with policy than ever before. Many of them don't have hunters' best interest in mind. So we we involve we are involved in that arena a lot. Most deer hunters aren't even aware of the, the National Deer Association, the fact that we do this, but we fight for all deer hunters' rights. It helps us to understand exactly the playing fields in all these different states, whether we're involved at the federal level or the state level. So in this case, we ask this question because we get involved in a lot of different state wildlife agencies with this. So we want to know, okay, what is the actual composition of that commission? Because we work with those commissions in your state, the NRC, and my state, the Board of Commissioners. So it helps to know, okay, who are those people sitting there? Were they appointed there politically or not? Or were they elected? Because as a, you know, as a journalist, as a writer, you know more than anybody else, you have to know your audience. You have to understand your audience, whether you're writing, speaking, or whatever to be most impactful. Same thing in policy. So we did this so that we have a, a, a better understanding of who are those board of commissioners and those commissions? Are those people there, you know, 
are they made up of just elected officials that don't really care or you know do they have a you know a natural resource interest so anyway that's where that came from to help us better understand what the audience is as we work but then also to help deer hunters in any given state understand who is sitting there representing them Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. So, so that said, that's, that helps me understand the why. Can you, can you give me maybe your own perspective, your personal take, or if you think the National Deer Association has a larger um, angle on this, just just where, hmm, what am I trying to say here? 
what do we need to be thinking about or how do we need to address the possible risk of new stakeholders on these commissions with anti-hunting agendas influencing the management of wildlife in our states? Do we have any ability to address that, mitigate that, um, change that? This is something that seems to be coming up more and more often and seems like something we probably need to be not just aware of, but also armed to address. Yeah, I'm I'm a fan of having a a broad range of, you know, of those commissions from a, a stakeholder standpoint. Um, some get very nervous if every one of them there isn't an avid hunter. Um, I think that there's enough influence just legislatively in any state that even if you have a, a stacked commission or all hunters, you know, you're naive to think there's still not political influence impacting what happens. So I think it's good for us to have a, a wider range of people there um, because deer impact a lot of people and the wider the range of stakeholders we have sitting at the table, I firmly believe the better job we can do managing those resources. Um, however, I get real nervous, you know, when, uh, when those people are put on there, you know, whether it's an anti-hunter or, you know, an avid hunter, when they are just politically selected boom, you're sitting there and suddenly you have a lot of influence over what that state wildlife agency does. Love them or hate them, state wildlife agencies are full of professionals who have dedicated their life to wildlife management. I think it's good that you have a board of people that kind of oversee what they do, but some of those boards are phenomenal in that they're taking direction from the agency, not just the biologists, the marketers, you know, the R3 people, all of that, and putting all that together. Where we run into real problems is where we have hand-selected politically people sitting there with a very different agenda that suddenly have a huge opportunity to influence what all of those professionals have done and just unilaterally be like, okay, we have all of this work. Nope, I'm picking over here. That's where I think yeah. we have the greatest risk. And we've seen examples of that increasingly over the past five to 10 years. So I, I have real problems with that. And um, it not only impacts what goes on with that state, it impacts, I mean, this year, but it impacts in the future because we see burnout from state wildlife agencies that, hey, our folks are professionals. We're doing the studies. We're analyzing the data. We're providing all this. Now I'm picking here. Well, do this again. No, I'm more. And suddenly you get people like, you know what? It doesn't matter that I pour my blood, sweat, and tears into this if it never matters. So. I think there's a real risk in, you know, not just the decision today, but, you know, the decisions of, you know, the people to go into the wildlife profession and work for those agencies five, 10, 20 years down the road. I'll say this, when I came out of school or when I was in school, all I wanted to do was be a state wildlife agency, deer biologist. Um, I became that. And, you know, within six years of state wildlife agency work, realized this is not at all what I thought this was going to be. Like they didn't talk about all the political influence and all that. And I think you have to have some of that, but it was way more than, uh, than I had was led to believe. And it's only gotten worse in the last 20 years. So you were starting to see the best students coming out of wildlife programs today with zero interest going into state wildlife management. And I think that's a problem and it's influenced by political selection of some of these commissioners. Okay, so what's the solution to that? What, what 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 can we do, if anything, if we have a commission like that 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 has political appointees that seem to arbitrarily, unilaterally 
taking actions that do not align with the best science or recommendations from the agency. Do we have any influence to, to change that? We, we do uh, in some places. Yes. And some no. And the reason is um, it's not only political appointees on these commissions. Some of it is the executive director of the state wildlife agencies. And he or she can directly influence what the staff does. Um, there are some good examples of where that person is not politically appointed. So there's, I think there's a better opportunity to use the good science that that agency does. Um, because if you're not politically appointed, there's less reason for you to have those political ties, you know, to make sure that, oh yeah, I get to keep my job next year, the year after. So, uh, um, I don't work in the, the political arena, certainly not nearly as much as our, our director of policy does, but I have been in it enough to see, boy, you know, there can be some serious problems. Um, I'm not naive, Mark, and to think that, hey, there's a magical solution to, to all of this, but I have seen enough problems with some of that to make me realize that hunters, we need to be very aware of this and we need to be engaged. It doesn't do us any good to just not pay attention or put our head in the sand. I think that's when it's the worst for hunters. So uh, understanding what's going on um, always helps. And, you know, when there's an opportunity to make our voice heard and we do this, all the conservation organizations, you know, through their political or through their uh, policy work, you know, have an opportunity to let their members know, hey, this is a bad deal for you. You know, like if you want to share your opinion, here's how you do it. Um, we just need more hunters to take advantage of that today than before because you know that political swing works both ways you know it's not just a one-way street if they're hearing from a lot of sportsmen and women you know that they're upset about something well that that gets noticed at higher levels as well yeah so the the kissing cousin of this kind of thing is the ballot box initiatives and wildlife management decisions being placed on ballot initiatives that the general public votes on we, we've seen this most commonly it seems with predator-related issues. Um, but regardless of what you think about predator management, I want to speak to the larger um, issue here of these types of wildlife management decisions being taken out of the hands of the managing agencies, out of the hands of the folks working on the ground that have the science, and instead putting the decision on you, me, any random person out there deciding whether or not we should reintroduce a species or outlaw a type of hunting or a practice. Um, all of these things now are showing up on ballots. Um, and it seems to be some Western states here most recently. Um, but can you speak to that risk of that kind of thing expanding? And is there anything that we can do as hunters and anglers to, 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 to mitigate that risk? Or are we just kind of at the whims now of where things are going? I am not a fan of ballot box, you know, wildlife measure stuff at all, as, as I'm sure you guessed. Um, and mostly because wildlife never wins with that. Um, a lot of Western states recently have gone those lines. We see that a lot of the Northeast, so too, Maine has been through that numerous times over the past two decades, you know, relative to trapping and bear hunting and some other things. So, um, and then the reason I say that wildlife doesn't win is because wildlife management is very complex. Um, you can't share enough information for those ballot boxes for, for the average hunter, I'm sorry, the average citizen to make an informed decision. But what it's very easy to do because wildlife is so cool is to show a cuddly picture of something and then use that emotion to greatly influence which way you want them to swing. We see this with predators, you know, with a baby mountain lion. It doesn't have to be predators though. I can show you a cute picture of a fawn. 
who's a prey item and swing people that way. I can show you a cute picture yeah. of a possum, mother possum holding, you know, babies and swing it. So we have the opportunity for emotion to override everything else when we get into these wildlife ballot box initiatives. And that's why I say wildlife loses because we end up with emotion driving uh, the, the situation. And then once that's done, you're left with the public and the state wildlife agency to pick up the pieces. You know, it'd be like we have a ballot box initiative. Do you want your local bank to give you everybody, you know, an extra hundred dollars today? Ballot box. Well, heck yeah. Everybody vote yes. And afterwards <laughs> they go to the bankers and say, okay, this is what the public voted. Now you figure out how to make this work. You can't Good do luck. that. But it's the same analogy when they take this to the wildlife age. Okay. Now you figure it out. Well, geez, you know, we were arguing yeah. against this all along because this won't work. Regardless, take, you know, take the, the wolf thing in Colorado. I don't care if you love wolves or don't love wolves. The ballot box is not the way to make that happen because it's never going to be yeah. successful that way, regardless of which side yeah. of the issue you're on. So, yeah, I'm not a fan of them. Yeah. So the, the, so the next question is, again, kind of the same thing I said with the commissions. Do we have any leverage when it comes to this stuff other than just pushing back to our representatives within within the within the government stating the case like hey we don't like these things well i think that we certainly can and should let our our represent representatives know hey this is how i feel about this you know you're representing me um but i think that our agencies also have an opportunity way before the ballot part of it to have some very strong educational campaigns out there about whatever species is. You know, those type of things can move the needle. That's one of the reasons this past year where the Southeast Year Partnership, where we did the, you know, the um, documentary with Wild Tail, America's Greatest Conservation Success Story, that whole project was about showing the value of deer, not just to hunters, but mostly to non-hunters. I don't care if you hunt or not. If you live in the east, you know, the southeastern U.S., you're impacted by deer, whether you hit them with a car, whether you see them in a field, whether you like to feed birds. Deer are impacting those birds, and deer hunters are funding that. So let's show the value of deer to people. You know, we want hunters to be able to speak more intelligently about them, but the non-hunting public, we want them to know more. I think it's those type of efforts about these other species as well in advance of those ballot boxes, whether it's wolves in Colorado or bears in Washington or or whatever, um, I think those are the type of things where our agencies, in this case, it was a conglomeration of agencies, but state wildlife agencies as well can do more from a educational campaign and not just a one-time thing. You know, it has something has to be long-term that you know can help influence uh, public sentiment around what these issues are. Because once it gets to the ballot box, then Emotion ends up taking over too much because the timeline is small. We have to play the long game with making folks understand, you know, why something is good for a wildlife species or not. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, no easy fix here. Mm. No easy answer. That's for certain. And that is so often the case when it comes to wildlife or deer in, in particular. So you've wrapped up the report been out there in the world for a little while now when you close your eyes go sleep at night with this information now in hand or anything else that's going on in the world of whitetails kip what is one trend or one issue 
at hand that is keeping you up at night? And what is one thing that gives you hope for the future? Uh, one thing that keeps me up at night is uh, we go through so many revisions of this, I think. Man, I hope we found all the errors. <laughs> there are literally, you know, millions of numbers in here from 48 different state wildlife agencies. And we go through a very rigorous process among our staff. We'll review, look, count number. Then it all goes back to the state wildlife agencies to review again. And they make revisions like, oh, this wasn't. So we do such an effort to minimize errors. Um, but I know there, you know, I'm sure there are still some in there. So it bothers me, you know, that we have errors. So that definitely keeps me up. But as far as an, <laughs> an actual trend, um, CWD is, 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 is there, if not the top, right near the top. Um, just because it's such a big issue that we can't solve in one year. Um, you know, we certainly look at it as one of the biggest things affecting the future, as do the vast majority of, of wildlife professionals. There's certainly some folks out there that say this is not a big deal or whatever, but, you know, the vast majority, and I'm talking, you know, above 90% of all wildlife professionals see this as one of the biggest issues impacting the future of deer and deer hunting. So, so that one definitely keeps me up thinking and wondering for my part, you know, I'm not a scientist that studies the epidemiology or that for my part, I think it was okay. Like, what can I do to help share some more information with hunters and what can we as an organization do, you know, to help hunters have a bigger piece of this to, you know, to help solve this. So that that's where I am on that. But the CWD, Mark, um, even though I'm an optimist and I, we will solve this, I have no doubt that one definitely keeps me up. Yeah. And then what, what gives you hope? What, what's got you excited or feeling good about the future? To take a look at where we are today, deer hunting, um, think about when your wildlife career started or my wildlife career started, the makeup of the deer herd was so different. Very skewed toward young bucks, very skewed toward bucks and uh, not, not, you know, antler, I'm sorry, very skewed toward antlerless deer and not enough bucks. Today, that is very different. We said earlier, we have the best age structure on the buck side that we've had in at least the last 100 to 150 years. Yeah, we have some regulations from the state wildlife agencies that help that, but it has been an entire change in the hunting culture to get there. I know it is 180 degrees for me from where I started hunting, you know, in the early 80s in Pennsylvania. I know it's very different for you in Michigan as well. Think about where mm -hmm. we were to where we are today there. That is a huge gain, like tremendous gain. Yeah. That gives me good hope that whether it's CWD or anything else, hey, hunters helped fix this. Hunters have helped fix almost everything that impacts deer, you know, for the last several hundred years. So that gives me hope that, you know what, we're going to be part of the solution again. We work closer with our state wildlife agencies than ever before. We're more educated than ever before. There's more resources like your podcast than ever before to share good information and teach. So the um, thing that I'm very hopeful about is, you know what, I have seen tremendous gains for the good of deer hunting and deer management. And uh, hunters were part of that. We'll be part of it again. Here, here. I agree with you on that one, Kip. So, so give me the plug for anyone listening. How can somebody get the 2024 deer report for themselves and review the numbers and review? The, there's a whole lot more on the report we didn't get to. So there's a lot to, to dig into if you're interested. So where can they find that? How can they become a member of the National Deer Association and why should they do that? They can get the report for free at our website, which is deerassociation.com. They can go there, 
to our just click NDA programs, deer report, and then you can download this year's as, as well as every other year's. They're all right there for free. Um, we even have an interactive index there with them that you can search by topic and, you know, and immediately go to whatever that topic is in all of those years deer reports. So we try to make it easy as possible for folks to do that, um, to become a member. Um, they can sign up right at our website. We have different membership levels. Um, the, a great one is our premium member, which used to be what we called an annual member, but that gives them access to all kinds of discounts for things that are NDA sponsors. Vortex Optics, OnX, the list goes on and on, and you will get way more than the monetary benefit from those places by the low membership fee there. So you can do that and have access to all of our stuff. If you say, you know what, I'm just not into to, uh, to, to the paying membership, we have a free membership option that we started this past year that we think is pretty novel and we're excited about. You can join for free. Doesn't get you the all the discounts for all of the uh, sponsors that we have, but it at least gets you our weekly newsletter and so that you can be aware of all the stuff that's going on in the deer world. So very simple way to stay connected uh, without having to pay anything. If you're on pay a little bit, you get way more benefits, you know, from those other places as well. So uh, I like it that we're trying to appeal to a broader range of deer hunters that, you know, may have the means to, to join with an annual fee or not. So I think that's pretty cool, but they can do that all at deerassociation.com. Perfect. Well, I would certainly encourage anyone listening to to do that and uh, to sign up for that premium membership. If if nothing else, you can look at that as a donation to a really important organization that has done tremendous things for our deer hunting opportunities over the years. And uh, I'm a big fan and appreciative of the work you guys have done. So that appreciation extends to you specifically too, Kip. Thank you. Thank you as always for this conversation and, and for everything over the years. You've uh, You've taught me personally so much, and uh, I appreciate that. Well, thank you very much. I like that. I, I've certainly enjoyed our friendship over the years, and uh, and I learn a bunch from you as well. And I certainly respect the audience that you have, and you know how much good you do sharing information and getting it out there to folks. So uh, you've had a big impact, and um, so I'm glad to be here and uh, maybe play a small part in uh, in some of the information for the at least the month of January. Agreed. Well, how about we do this twelve months from now again? Sounds good. I'm looking forward to it. So uh, thank you for the opportunity, <laughs> right. Mark, and uh, you have a great day. All right. And that is a wrap. I'll just echo what Kip said. Head on over to DeerAssociation.com. Get a copy of the report. Become a member. Follow along. They provide all sorts of great educational resources, as well as you know policy updates, action emails, different things that you can do to take action and help the future of deer hunting in your state across the country, whether it be sending an email, making a phone call, showing up for a volunteer event, the NDA is coordinating a lot of this stuff and uh, it's great to be involved in that. So thanks for tuning in. Thanks for being a part of this. And until next time, thank you and stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules 
from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. 